Welcome to Movie Maker. I'm Tim Malloy, and today our guest is Barbara Koppel, whose name you know if you're any kind of fan of documentaries. She won her first Academy Award in 1977 for Harlan County, USA, about a brutal unionization fight between mine workers and a company that wouldn't recognize their right to organize in Kentucky's Harlan County. She won a second Oscar in 1991 for American Dream, about a strike against the Hormel Foods Corporation in Minnesota. If this all sounds very serious, of course it is, but she also has a light touch with a great sense of humor. The website for her production company, Cabin Creek Films, includes a great joke referencing her on The Simpsons. Barbara Koppel is known for a cinema verite or truthful cinema style, also known as fly on the wall in some circles, in which she carefully observes with minimal interference. She evolved it after breaking into documentaries while working for the Maisley Brothers and working on their film Salesman and Gimme Shelter. She also brings this style to films about bold-faced names like Wild Man Blues, in which she followed Woody Allen and his soon-to-be wife, Sunni Previn, as his jazz band played across Europe in the late 1990s, not long after his custody dispute with Mia Farrow, in which he was accused of molesting their daughter, Dylan Farrow. Barbara Koppel's other films about famous people include the acclaimed Dixie Chicks doc, Shut Up and Sing, about the fallout from singer Natalie Maine's criticism of the Iraq War, and I'm leaving out many, many other credits to get to her latest, The Gumbo Coalition, which started out as a film about two modern-day civil rights leaders and ends up being a portrait of civil rights in the Trump presidency, from family separations to George Floyd. I saw the film at the Sarasota Film Festival, where I'm recording this episode, and which is now celebrating its 25th anniversary. Congratulations. If you're in Sarasota, you can catch The Gumbo Coalition this Sunday, April 2nd, if not, I recommend finding and watching it as soon as you can. And now, here's one of the people I've been most excited to talk with in the almost four years we've been doing this podcast, Barbara Koppel, director of a stunning number of great films, including her latest, Gumbo Coalition. So the first thing I should probably ask is, can you say what the Gumbo Coalition is and how you got involved in this movie? Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, the Gumbo Coalition and... I wanted to be a little whimsical in the title. Um, in New Orleans, there's this fabulous dish called gumbo and you sort of throw everything into it. And Mark Morial of the National Urban League and Janet Marguia of Unidos um, wanted to be have everything be inclusive. And so the name sort of came from that. Not that many people will know that, but we know that, so we're excited about it. And I got involved in it. Um, our executive producers knew Mark and uh, Patty and I met at a Creative Coalition. Um, we were both on a panel. And so uh, we started talking and she said, you know, you've got to meet this guy, Mark Morial. I think you'll really like him. And I said, okay. And so some of my team and I went over to his office here in New York, where I'm based, and he just was wonderful. He just totally brought us in. He was so passionate. He really spent some time with us. And he said, if, you know, we'd love you to do the film, but if you're going to do the film, please, you know, include my very good friend, Janet Marguia. Um, and we said, absolutely, we will meet with her and see if she's game. And so they both said yes. 
you open with a scene in a prison that I feel like is a perfect Barbara Koppel scene um, where Mark is going in with a group called Save Our Sons, which is dedicated to basically helping prisoners make it on the outside and start their lives over essentially wherever they are, whether they're getting out at 40 or 45 or 50. And it's such an intimate scene and the camera is moving around so intimately. Um, I think even between prisoners at different points. How did you achieve that intimacy? Um, well, I think that when you're making a documentary and people are really engaged in what they're doing, they forget that there's a camera there. And I think that that's what happened. This was their opportunity to really talk about themselves, to have Mark there. And we were not very important in the whole scheme of things, but felt honored and happy to be able to record it. Hmm. And you usually work with a small crew. It's you, a camera and sound. Yeah. I mean, this is an all male environment. It's a prison. They're, they probably aren't even used to being around women, right? Um, I've been in lots of male prisons and they, they, they wanted to be part of Save Our Sons. They wanted to change their life. Some of them had been in there for 10 or 12 years and they were getting out in the next 30 days. And what really mattered to them was having an organization that was gonna help them put a resume together for them, set up interviews for them and somebody who had their back and really cared about them. Yeah. I've been behind prison walls a couple of times and I'm always thrown off by the thing where they make you turn in any pens, they make you turn in anything sharp, just all of that stuff that makes it seem like it's going to be this Hannibal Lecter experience. And of course it's not, of course, it's just people talking. Um, yeah. They, you get searched. I mean, I've been, um, the men's house of detention went in and not filmed, but talked with Jack Kevorkian and, you know, I had my hair up and they made sure I didn't have anything sharp in it. And, you know, it's, it's part of the deal. So you just go through it. It's not a big deal. I love what that. What you really want is the people and you really want the people to bloom and to be able to tell their stories. The cinema verite approach that also really comes through in the Unidos meeting where a woman is talking about her husband being arrested, I believe for- Rose Escobar. Yeah, he's arrested just because his time has run out. He hasn't committed a crime. Right. Anything. Yeah, there was some tiny little thing they found. Um, I mean, she'd been, they'd been going there for years, but there was some tiny little thing that they found that didn't have a dotted I or a cross T. And so- that was the excuse that they used to deport him. But Janet Margia and Unidos and many other organizations just got on it and would not let him stay there. And he was back, it was a while, it was, he was back in two years, but it was something that was phenomenal. And she was so beautiful, Rose Escobar, yeah. in explaining what happened and also dedicating a lot of her life to helping other people. Are you able to disappear into an emotional meeting like that? I always worry, you know, am I intruding on this? How no, as I said before, <laughs> this is what matters. You know, they care about getting their story out and that's all that matters. Has it gotten easier to blend in in recent years? 
with smaller equipment? Um, no, it's harder because to blend in because people are more media savvy than they were when I started. But, you know, we try to make ourselves as invisible as we possibly can. And there's something going on. There's always something going on. So there's nothing for them to be nervous about. They're engaged in what they're doing. When you've, I wonder if you have the same approach when you're dealing with celebrities. I mean, you've done films with Mike Tyson, with the Dixie Chicks, with Woody Allen. When it's someone like that, where there's often mediation through publicists or something, are you able to take the same approach? I don't do it unless I get total access and I don't have all these people telling me what to do. The person who I'm filming has to want to be able to tell their story. And, you know, Woody Allen, for example, was in very uncomfortable situations. He was traveling all over Europe, you know, um, playing with his jazz band. And some of these were uncomfortable and there was paparazzi and there was all sorts of things happening. So, it, you know, we, we were just part of the family. We were in the family. Yeah. And it was nice too, because he would go to, he knew all the really good restaurants in Europe. And I always put a wireless mic on the characters. And so I was listening, they were at one table, we were at another table and okay, he's having the flounder, <laughs> tell everybody at the table. And they would say, okay, okay, thanks. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that, I, I love that movie because sometimes you have this idea with celebrities like, oh, they put on an image and they're different in real life. And he sort of seemed like he's just really like that all the time. He's, he's totally like that yes oh. he, he was wonderful I mean he gave us total access we could do whatever we wanted to do you know he was great and Suni was great and she really came across as you know the warm wonderful caring person that she is so I, I should ask this so people don't get mad at me for not asking obviously you've talked about making that movie since me too um and you've said you know you're glad you made the movie and you don't actually believe he was accused of what he was accused of? Um, I, I don't. I mean, I don't know. You know, none of us will ever really know, but I like him and I like her. They've stayed together for a long time. They have two adopted children and, you know, they seem to be really happy. Yeah. You know, this kind of leads into something else I wanted to ask you about, which is a, a newer maybe it isn't a newer school of documentary, but a recent trend among documentaries of very opinionated documentaries and documentaries that have a very strong POV. Um, and I think Alan V. Farrow is maybe the most prominent example of that recently where it's, they clearly think he's very guilty. Did you see that documentary? Did you have an opinion on it? Do you have an opinion? Um, on I didn't see it, but I, I feel that, you know, people need to express themselves as they see it. And, you know, Michael Moore is in his films and I try to not be in my films sometimes. You'll hear my little voice, but I think all of it's important and all of it is part of our culture and our history. And I don't put that down at all. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that specifically because you're so good at telling the story. And I think it's clear where your sympathies lie but you never have to put your thumb on the scale and say, I think it's very, I think it's more skillful personally 
and I'm an old AP person, um, but more skillful than uh, coming right out and yelling at people on camera or being confrontational or something like that. That's just, I'm, that's not the kind of person I am. I like to make people feel really relaxed, really cared about, and that they can trust that what they say will, will not be altered in any way. Yeah. And that if they want to tell their story, we're here to, to capture it. When you were making this most, this most recent film, Gumbo um, Coalition, were you aware that you're making this time capsule of the last few years, that you were making really a time capsule of civil rights in the Trump administration, or were you taking it day by day? I, we, we were not aware. I mean, well, we were because it was happening, but I think we just wanted to really see this story and who these people are, Mark and Janet, through their lens and how they deal with challenges, how they deal with victories. Um, that was what was important. I wasn't thinking about, oh, this is historical or time capsule or Trump. I was just mostly thinking about them as the characters. Yeah. I love that it starts with this sort of, it feels like it's the fly in the wall, this is what he does moment where Mark is asking, asking kids to promise that they'll register to vote. And then it ends with the election and him saying elections have consequences. This small thing takes on this huge resonance at the end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he loves interacting with people. And because of his upbringing where he went to, you know, a white school where he was one of the few people of color and all his friends, you know, in the neighborhood were black. He's the kind of guy that just fits in anywhere and loves engaging with whoever will engage with him. He's larger than life. And Janet's really wonderful at that too. She just loves, she's very empathetic and she loves to hug people and take care of them and really listen to their stories. Plus she's got a real sense of humor. She's very funny. You mentioned not making a documentary unless you have complete unfettered access. Where does that end? I mean, are you on, I have unfettered access between 7 a.m. and 5 p.m. or? What? No, it just, it, it, there's no time. I mean, life is life and life doesn't start at seven and end at five. Um, so when they're out and about or doing things or just hanging around, you know, if, they're comfortable, we'll be there. Yeah. And you just tell them you're on the record all the time. If you- Well, they have wireless mics on and when they see us, that's our job. But they don't think about that. I mean, they really don't. They think about their lives, their kids, you know, Mark's kids. They, they think about who they are. They don't think about the camera at all. I think you also have a place in documentary history and a reputation that is impeccable where they can look at your work and know that you're not going to as as you put it you know take them out of context or misrepresent them or anything if somebody's a rising documentarian how do they get how would you encourage them to get that kind of access i mean how would you encourage them to get people to agree to be on the record basically all the time i think by by telling the people who they're filming the truth about what they want to do and their passion for the subject. And even though you probably don't have 
much of a budget you're willing to put everything that you have into it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, um, do you feel that we're, I know you've talked in the last few years about there being a documentary boom, but I don't know if that documentary boom still exists. And I actually talked to a documentarian today who thinks there's been kind of a bust. Do you think we're still in a boom? Do you think it's growing, shrinking? Um, well, I know that it's very hard to distribute films right now, not only documentaries, but also fiction films. Uh, but I think that people need to keep working and need to keep telling the stories that they are, that they're telling, because we're not doing it to have a documentary boom. We're doing it because we love what we do and we want to know so much and we want to have a sense of truthfulness about the work that we do. Yeah. You want to love the the reward is the work itself and you hope that you can make enough money to survive, but you don't have to be a. Right. I mean, you can't let a little thing like money stop you from doing the things that you love in life. Yeah. And I know there's people who are going to say that's easy for you to say, but. Oh, it's you... not easy for me to say. You don't know what I go through. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think people look at you now and go, oh my gosh, look at the success record. But when you started off, I mean, you were. Uh, but still, I hardly ever have much money to do films. So it's, it, it hasn't changed that much. Has it gotten at all easier? Um, a little bit easier. I mean, if I apply for grants, I don't get them because they think, oh, well, she doesn't need it. And that started right after Harlan County. So it's, it's tough. And if they only knew how much I do, I mean, the biggest challenge for me in making a film is is raising money and being able to keep going and figuring out how to keep going. Have you thought there must be some better model to do this or if, if only someone would create this, it would help so many people? I mean, do you have an idea? Well, for a while it was like that. I mean, you know, Netflix was out there and, you know, HBO and so many different places. So there has been, I mean, it's totally changed since the very beginning when I started, when people would say, why does a little girl like you want to make films like this or, you know, that kind of thing. And documentaries were thought of to be very boring, like, you know, the capital of um, Uruguay or something. <laughs> so, oh. but it, it's totally changed. And I think also the cameras are small and people can maneuver and you're not working in film, which was very expensive. I mean, and people have done, I mean, documentaries, you just sit there and love them. I mean, I can't wait to see them and see what people are doing. It's very exciting. And to know that, you know, 20 years from now or whatever it is, we'll have all of this culture and all of this history and, be able to laugh and really look at our lives and our world. You know, I saw this film out of the Sarasota Film Festival where uh -huh. the motto this year is the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh -huh. And with all of the documentaries out recently covering stuff that you covered contemporaneously, it does feel sort of like, oh, I can just go back to 1975 whenever I want to, or I can go back to 1990 and it's just right there waiting for me. Do you feel that sense of the more things change, the more they stay the same? Do things feel cyclical? Do, do we feel like we're 
at a point where we could just choose a moment in history and jump into it? Um, I would love to to be able to do that <laughs> through film. I think lots of lots of things have changed, but I think unfortunately, thematically, things have remained the same. So I agree with you. Yeah, I, I, it's striking to see how many of the civil rights issues are exactly the same in yeah. this film. Um, no, it's true. Everyone says it all the time, but doesn't make it less frustrating. Um, I had a couple of Harlan County questions. Okay. I've just, I just haven't seen answered anywhere else and maybe you've answered them a million times and I apologize if you have. I have no idea. It's been a long time. <laughs> your Wikipedia says that during the making of Harlan County, you carried two guns. One. Uh, one gun, okay. I wondered why two guns? No, just one. At the very beginning, um, the organizer called me in um, and his name was Houston Elmore. And, you know, I grew up in Scarsdale, New York, which was, you know, a very relatively safe place. And he opened sort of this suitcase and he said, so which gun do you want? And I said, why? He said, well, everyone carries a gun here. And so there was a gun that was pink, <laughs> very little. And so I chose that one. And I knew I would never use it, but I, he wanted me to have it. So I had it. But then later on, um, we were given uh, very high-powered rifles because, you know, we were being machine-gunned and the places everybody was saying was being um, shot up at night. And, you know, I really learned how to shoot. Um, you know, you put it on your shoulder and if you didn't do it right, your shoulder would be bruised. And so... Yes, but I never, I just used it to learn how to use it. I never used it on anybody. Did, did that affect your position in any way in like the culture wars of which guns are such a big part? No. Yeah, yeah. No. You're, I, I mean, don't... there it was like a civil war and it was a long time ago. And I don't think, you know, I haven't touched a gun since then but yeah. it was part of the culture. I mean, people wear their guns on the outside. The first day or two I was in Harlan County, um, somebody had shot somebody over flirting with their wife and um, the guy was out of the hospital and he said, you know, 357s ain't shit on his car and was going around. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> so you weren't you didn't come away from that going like oh I get it I'm a second amendment supporter now no um, I, I was a kid you know yeah. all of this was new I was trying to understand who they were as people trying to understand the culture and just so happy that I was able to be there um, and watch people struggling and doing something to really change their lives so no yeah. i was really curious I, I had this idea in my head that the children of the miners who you profile in harlan county who are sort of the face of the working class and the workers who deserve better treatment their kids in the next generation of miners become like some of the most ardent trump supporters and i went is that just in my head and so i want to check it's in your head Okay. I mean, at least the ones I know. I mean, from Harlan County, um, what would be, let's 
Jerry and Dorothy, who were two of the characters, and we stayed with them. And they had three daughters, and one of them was Mary, and Mary had a daughter. So um, Mary's daughter would call me up a lot and, you know, ask me a million questions. And she's very progressive, and she wants to be a journalist. And no, I didn't see that happening. When I was there, people were very pretty progressive. I don't think the people I worked with there would have voted for Trump, but I haven't been there in a long time. I was going by Harlan County voting records, which is not not an anecdotal way of looking at it. It's more of a macro. And of course, they're not the same people. I'm thinking more metaphorically. I mean, the way that coal miners became the people who he would reach out to and say that he was fighting for when he seems like exactly the kind of, he doesn't seem, my editorializing, he doesn't seem like a fan of working people. Um, That's... Yeah. That's what I think a lot of us think and feel. <laughs> but one thing did happen, and I didn't start thinking about it until a couple of years ago, is that there were people for the sheriff, Billy G. Williams, who was the sheriff in Harlan County. Um, people were going in and paying different coal miners $100 to vote for Billy G. Williams. And I got some of that on film. I didn't use it um, I, for no good reason. But now I sort of, you know, it, it means a lot more to me at this stage in my life. Thank you so much for doing this and just incredible honor. All right. And thank you for caring. And um, the Sarasota Film Festival is great. I've been going there for a long time. And one of the things that made it very special two things that made it special this year was there was this guy named Jay and he was 82 years old and he had been a volunteer for the entire length of the festival for 25 years and that just meant so much to me as we were driving around um, he would tell me stories so I thought that that was quite amazing and also the way that um Mark, who's the head of the festival, sort of wines you and dines you for a few nights and just tells you the most fabulous stories that you've ever heard. And it's just, it's just a wonderful festival and wonderful place to be. I also met up with um, this guy I hadn't seen in a really long time who played with Jimi Hendrix um, at Woodstock 69 and you know has been playing ever since. And so we went out to dinner and I got to see him perform. And it was really, it was nice. There's wow. lots of different types of people there. Oh, I love that. Oh, and Andrew Durham, who's another filmmaker who did Fairyland, which is just a beautiful film. It was his first film and um, first script that he adapted. And we were almost like joined at the hip for the time that he was there. So you really get to meet people and you know, find out about them and spend time with them. We were even interviewed together and had so much fun. <laughs>